Man, what a great song. There's a line in that song. My heart just aches for it to be true. Perfect submission, all is at rest. Don't you long for that day when you can look to Christ and you can be in perfect submission, completely at rest. Man, I can't tell you how much I long for that, how much my soul craves that. And yet my flesh rails against that. But fortunately, my story is that death could not hold him. Man, we could just camp out right there for a while. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, we are finally through the Ten Commandments. uh, And now we are going to continue on and see what it is that God has for his people. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 21, but we're going to bounce around uh, a bit. We'll be in Leviticus. We'll be in a a few other places uh, throughout the scriptures. So did you know this morning uh, we're here in this church service? If this church service were to be in the state of Mississippi and any of you all were to interrupt this church service, then anyone else in here could go full Gomer pile on you and pull a citizen's arrest. Do you know that? If you were to interrupt this church service in the state of Mississippi, you could be arrested by another uh, citizen for that offense. If you were in Illinois and you happened to fall asleep in a cheese shop, it would be illegal for you to fall asleep while you were in that cheese shop. That law is on the books. Uh, if, you were in, uh, uh, if you were in West Virginia... You guys know the, uh, the good old-fashioned swear jar? Every time you, you, you say a curse word, you've got to put a quarter or a dollar in the bucket. West Virginia has their legal version of the swear jar. If you curse in public, you can be fined exactly $1 for each curse word that you say. That is a law that is on the books. In Rhode Island, if you find yourself on a horse, it is illegal for you to test how fast that horse will go. You cannot speed test the horse in Rhode Island. And my favorite, if you're in Washington State and you see Bigfoot, you cannot kill Bigfoot. It is against the law for you to kill Bigfoot. And just in case you are curious what it means by Bigfoot, they uh, explain that in the law. They say Bigfoot, a Sasquatch, a Yeti, or a giant hairy ape. So if any of those qualify for what you killed, you could be guilty of breaking the law. Those are all real laws on the books from these states. Some of these are fairly recent. Some of these are from long ago, and they just never came off the books. There's some that have come off the books now, like for instance, in Alaska, it's illegal to give a a moose a beer. That's come off the books, so apparently prohibition is over for for all moose in Alaska. Uh, But there's laws like that that you can find all over the place that seem ridiculous to us because They are ridiculous, Um, but they exist, and somehow there's a story behind those laws and how those laws came to be and why those laws are out there uh, now. You can find lists like this all over the internet, and what you find is that the law has changed a lot in the very short history of this country. It's constantly changing, and often it gets stuck in the past with these type of ridiculous laws. But it also struggles the opposite direction, too. If you were to talk to any type of a, uh, a prosecutor today, what they would tell you is that there are crimes that are being committed that they cannot prosecute 
because the law hasn't kept up with the technology. So what they'll tell you is that uh, as much as it gets stuck in the past, it fails to adapt to the future. The reality is that the law isn't always the most reliable indicator of what society is supposed to be. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to read about some laws that are going to sound to our ears a lot like these, except probably not quite as funny. They aren't the kind of laws you'll be used to reading about because almost nobody wants to preach on a text like the one we're going to preach on today, which is exactly why we go through the Bible the way that we typically go through the Bible, verse by verse, or at least segment by segment, because there's stuff that we would skip over that no preacher would go to these texts for a sermon. But yet here we are, because this is how we do it, walking through the book of Exodus. And so if you don't believe me, We'll read a few of these to get our conversation started this morning, and then we'll attack this problem head on. So Exodus chapter 21, and we'll start in verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, she shall deal with her, or he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee." But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, then you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and he shall have him thoroughly healed. Skip with me to Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, just down a few verses here. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and his cloak, <clears throat> and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse, the ruler, curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the fields. You shall throw it to the dogs. And we could just keep on going and going and going. Is there anything that can seem more irrelevant to us standing here in 2019? Is there anything that can seem more irrelevant to us than these texts right here? And when I say irrelevant, that's being kind, because if not, they're outright offensive. The selling of slaves and daughters, the buying of a bride, the ridiculous amount of laws that lead to being put to death. If you curse your mother and father, you should be put to death. 
Why should we spend time studying these laws? Why is any of this important to us? Why can we not just dismiss this and say, this is totally irrelevant, don't waste your time, let's just move on? Or should we? These laws seem to be the equivalent of falling asleep in a cheese shop. Who cares? It just doesn't matter. They just aren't relevant to us. Well, there's a lot of reasons that we should look, look to these laws and that we should study these laws, but not least of which is the fact that this will be one of, if not the primary argument used against Christians for probably the rest of our lives here. This will be one of the primary arguments where people will come to us and say, your Bible is irrelevant, your Bible is offensive, and the fact that you claim it as your standard of faith tells me I can't take you seriously. And if you don't believe me, just go and watch a little bit of television. Just go and listen to a little bit of, of the conversation when it comes to these type of things. You will be dismissed as a Christian if you don't know what to do with these laws. You need to know why these laws matter and what we are supposed to do with them. The conversation will go something like this. How can you believe a book that is so completely irrelevant and out of date? It has laws about selling brides, about keeping slaves. It's even got laws about boiling goats in milk. That's in there. We just skipped over it. Why in the world would a book like this be relevant to us today? Not only that, you don't even abide by all of these laws. You gladly quote some of these as a standard for righteousness, yet others you just pick and choose and you dismiss and disregard altogether. Your Bible is useless at best. You are outright hypocritical, outright, an outright hypocrite. And not only that, if you read through this, this Bible is dangerous to minorities, to women, and so many other things. So my question for you is, when that charge is leveled against you, what is your answer? How do you respond to that? You need an answer for that. What do you say to this? How do we just pick and choose? We can't dismiss this charge against us because it has valid points. You can't just say, ah, you don't know what you're talking about, and then just move on. There's valid critiques here. There's valid criticisms. How can we quote some and dismiss, dismiss others? How can we put our faith in a book that violates so many of our Western values and sensibilities? Aren't we evolved past this to the point that we don't need to go back and use it as a, as a standard? Morally, societally, aren't we past this? If you don't have an answer for this, then you will be rightfully written off and dismissed. Furthermore, you need to come to grips with this for yourself. You need to figure out what this means. Because you need to be able to take the Bible and your faith seriously and not just say eh i don't know that's for the theologians this is for you to consider so let's do some work and see what it is that we need to make of these laws and others that we find in leviticus and deuteronomy that sound even worse than these first off we need to take stock in what's being done here remember all we've gotten so far in the sense of a law is the ten commandments right that's all we've really covered so far. Israel has just become a brand new nation. They were under the, the laws and the, and the way things are set up in Egypt. They let Egypt deal with all the structure of government and all those type of things. Now they have to figure that out. 
This is a brand new nation. They don't have an army. They don't have a police force. They don't have a prison. They don't have a court system. They don't have any of these things that we would deem necessary for them to function as a nation. So these laws are given in a very specific context. Secondly, these laws aren't just given to set up a new society. They are also laws that are given to set up how to worship this God that has just freed them. So while they are setting up a brand new society, they are also trying to figure out, hey, this Yahweh just did these amazing, amazing things to get us, set us free, but we don't know how to worship him. All they know about worshiping gods is the little bit that they've been given in the story of the patriarchs and then what they've seen from Egypt. Their style of worship will more mirror Egypt, and we'll see this whenever we start talking about uh, what, they've, what they're doing during this time while they're getting this law here very soon. But their worship will do more to mimic Egypt than it will be to actually worship God. So at this point, Israel has no idea how they're supposed to worship God. They have no idea how they're supposed to be a nation. They have no idea how they're supposed to do any of these things. These are two massively important facts that we must consider. The context in which this is given is not the United States of America 2019. It's not even the United States of America 1776. It is completely different. We have to remember this culture was already established in the how things worked for Israel in the sense that they had seen what worked in Egypt and there was some sense of culture already there. Now the structure wasn't there, but the culture was already there. So things like slavery, arranged marriage, a patriarchal system, they were all already there. So these laws are given within the context of how to build some framework around that. So this is very early in the story of Scripture, but it's given in this context to try to provide some framework around a system that already exists, that Israel was effectively handed from its cultures around it. All of these things are things that we would rightly label as oppressive and immoral today. But Israel was trying to figure out how to function at all within the cultures around it. And this is all that they knew. Even the slavery that is talked about here, we can't import our idea of what slavery is onto this text. The idea of slavery that we have from early American or from American history is not the same type of slavery that we see here where, where slaves are considered property. Whenever it talks about that, it's totally different sections. In fact, most of what is written here in, in 21 and 22 and in other places is talking about the humanity of those that would be quote-unquote slaves, but really are just under, uh, they're under a master, but it's a very different idea, and it's a very different picture. So we can't even import what we know today back onto this text. So we have to be very careful to say, what, to, to assume that we know exactly what is being talked about here. It is just a different framework. It is just a very different time and context. God is giving a moral framework for how to work within what is an oppressive system. And the arc of history will show that God breaks down these oppressive systems. But he chooses to do it over a long arc, not immediately with the law that he gives here. Now, for centuries, theologians have broken down the, the 
the, the law into three categories. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at how breaking the law down into these three categories is helpful for us. But we're not going to finish there. So you're going to have to track with me on this sermon. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to roll with me on this. But what has been suggested by theologians is that you can look at the Old Testament law and you can divide it into three categories. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. The idea is that the first two, the civil and the ceremony and the ceremonial, have disappeared. But the third category, the moral law, has remained. Theologians will typically put the Ten Commandments into the moral category, and most of your obscure ones, like what we just read, will somehow fit into the other two. And what I want to say is that this designation is helpful, but ultimately it will fail us. So first, what I want to do is I want to look at how it fails us, and then I want to come back and show you how it's helpful to us. So track with me here. Let's take an example. Leviticus 19.28. Just out of curiosity, anybody know what that verse says? It's not up there yet, is it? Leviticus 19.28. Anybody know that verse? No? I thought somebody might, might, might know it. All right. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now you tell me, what category does this belong to? Which one is it? Is it ceremonial? Is it civil? Is it moral? I could ask right now, who out there has a tattoo and make you kind of commit yourself before I tell you which category it goes in, right? But I won't do that. So which one is it? Is it civil, ceremonial, or moral? I'll be honest with you. I think I could make a case that it could be in any of the three. I think I could make a case that it could be in any of them. For many of us, what we know is that, uh, that, that what this should go in is that it should be the moral category, because this is what we've been taught a lot of our lives. Although I personally think that would be the weakest argument and the weakest uh, category for us to put it in. But which one would it go to? Many of us, even today, know plenty of people that would say getting a tattoo is a sign of immorality. It shows you've run with the wrong people, or that you are, in fact, the wrong people. Or that you have done enough that you should not be able to, 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 to withhold these things. So the, the context, though, the context in which this is given is about holiness and making sure that God's people are different than the people around them. The prohibition against tattoos was because the Canaanites would do this as a way of honoring or even worshiping the dead. So God's people were to do this because they didn't worship the dead. They were to avoid tattoos to show, no, we don't participate in that kind of worship. We don't want to be marked by this. We're to be different than the culture around us. So again, I ask, is that a moral command? What about this one? Just a couple of verses later. Verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. So don't be thinking about different crops. You pick one crop and that's all you can do. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of material. So which one does that go in? Is that moral, ceremonial, or civil? I don't know that it really fits in any of those. The other one, I can make a case it fits in all three. This one, I don't think I can make a case that it fits in any of those. How do we cite the one about tattoos and then not cite this one? Or how about this one? 
Leviticus 20, verse 13, just a little bit further. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they surely should be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Is that one moral, ceremonial, or civic? Again, the divisions are not helpful because you can argue for multiple classifications or no classifications for these laws. So no, we can't just pick and choose. You cannot just say, that one's moral, that one's not, and then when someone says, how do you know, you say, because I said so. That will not work. That's not going to fly. We can't just arbitrarily decide, because the, the Bible doesn't separate these categories for us. The Bible doesn't lay these categories out for us. Now, that being said, and we'll come back to this here in just a few minutes, that being said, this, this division is still helpful for us because there are many, many laws that we can very clearly see are given for a very specific context of this nation of Israel. A huge chunk of Leviticus is laws that are tied to purity and impurity and the sacrificial system. I mean, that's a huge chunk. If you've ever tried to do read the Bible in a year, this is where, the, 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 you know, at the end of January, beginning of February, this is where your year of the Bible goes awry. When you start reading this stuff in Leviticus, and you're like, I can't, I mean, really? This is a little much for me. I can't, I can't get past some of this stuff. And now all this, we can very clearly say, has been dismissed today because we are no longer under that sacrificial system. Because just as we read last week and as we've looked over the last few weeks, Jesus is our sacrifice. And after his sacrifice was made, there is no longer an offering for sin. The sacrificial system is gone. So right off the bat, you can take away all of that that is clearly tied to the sacrificial system. So, we can take that really quick and we can just say, alright, so that's irrelevant and move on. But that's not that helpful for us. Because even though we can say that is irrelevant because it's tied to the sacrificial system, there is still much we can learn from these laws. This is massive chunks of the Bible. Massive chunks of the Bible that have to do with how we worship and how we approach God. And so while we may not have food laws, we may not have specific uh, purity laws or specific instructions about how we do a sacrifice that are relevant to, to us today, what we can see from this is that God takes seriously how his people worship and how his people approach him. So no, the sacrificial system doesn't apply one-to-one -to, -one to us today, but the principle still remains that God takes seriously what we do when we worship him. We can see that sin is no small matter. The book of Leviticus is a river of blood. It is covered in scarlet. And what we can learn from that and from that sacrificial system is the heinousness of our sin and the desperate need for it to be atoned for. So, can we take that sacrificial system and apply it one-to-one? -one? No, but no, we can't just dismiss it either. We can learn from it. We can learn that God takes our sin seriously and our repentance and our need for repentance seriously. And we can see our need for a Savior. 
huge chunks of what we read this morning in Exodus and even more in Deuteronomy are tied to the civil creation of of the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel was a theocracy, which means that, that, that for them, their government, their religion was inseparable. The two were tied together. We talk here about the separation of church and state, and we debate over what that should look like and whether it's in the Constitution and all this other stuff. There was no debate in Israel. The two were so intertwined, you couldn't tell if they were talking about the church and religion or if they were talking about society and the laws for society. The two go together. They were effectively the same institution, and their laws reflected that. And they were given for that paradigm of government. You cannot simply take the laws that were given in that context and bring them over to our democratic context. Frankly, you can't take a lot of what's given in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and apply it to the nation of Israel once they have a monarchy. It just changes the way that they are set up. So it's easy to see how those laws don't transfer over to us either. However... We can learn from those sections too. We can learn that God does care about governments, that God does care about society and culture, that God does care about laws and how our leaders govern. We can also see that at the heart of many of these laws is the idea of justice. That justice is to be done. And that that, that many would consider to be virtually worthless, the downtrodden and the poor, the slave, that they too have rights, and they too must be remembered, and that we must fight for justice for them as well. God is a God of order and of justice, and we would do well to consider that when we look at our government and when we look at our societal causes today. He does care about those that have been forgotten. He does care about those that lead us, and we should too. So once again, the letter of the law doesn't apply, but the principle of the law teaches us about who God is and the way he looks at us. So you see how that that kind of threefold separation helps us, even though it fails us at critical moments, it helps us to kind of see, all right, so some of these are ceremonial, clearly, some are civil, clearly, but we don't just dismiss those laws, we still learn about the heart and the nature of who God is through those laws. So when someone accuses you of picking and choosing different parts of the Old Testament, that framework is a good place to start. That's not really easy to explain that in 140 characters on Twitter. It's not really easy to explain that in a Facebook post or to to be able to go through and and just sit down and and give a a quick soundbite answer. But God's story that he's telling is a lot bigger than a soundbite answer. I once heard this, uh, this uh, uh, analogy, all right? So uh, go ahead and put that, uh, the, the math formula up there. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody know what that's called? Anybody, any math people out there? Oh, look, so many of you know this. I feel dumb now. So because I'm not sure I would have remembered what that was just from seeing it. That's the quadratic equation, right? This is high school math somewhere, depending on how smart you are when you took it. Some of you is freshman, some of you is senior. I don't know. But this is high school math. Some of you all still use this. What is it used for? Does anybody know? <laughs> you know what it's called, but you have no idea what it's used for. Welcome to math. So we got some math people in here. What's it used for? Solving complex equations. Well, you could say that about anything in math. 
So, but when does it get used again? Is it in calculus? Is it in what? Algebra one and two. So it's used in high school, and that's it. So this is this is my question. Here's the thing: it's used for more than that, but I don't know what, right? And if you're gonna if you're gonna use the quadratic equation, there's things you got to know before you can do that. You got to know numbers. You got to know division, multiplication. You got to know square roots. You got to know order of operations. You got to know some algebra. You got to know this stuff, right? So if I hand you or a first grader a textbook, or maybe you, a textbook that says, here, do this, right? You're going to be at a loss if you haven't done the work beforehand to figure out how this works, right? You're not going to be able to just open up a textbook and be like, oh yeah, I know how this works. If I hand this to, uh, uh, to, to, to a first grader and say, do this problem, they're going to say, I don't know how. But... If you hand this to somebody that's more advanced in math that knows really what in the world this thing is for, if you hand this to somebody that knows what it's for, then they're going to say, oh yeah, you just plug this in here and it helps you get this, that helps you get this, and helps you get so many more things further down the story. So does, does that make sense, right? So the law, when you read this in the Old Testament, is kind of like this. There's stuff that came before that you've got to know, that you've got to be able to understand before you understand why that law is in there at all. And then what you've got to know is that that law is going to be used in some way further down the line. That there's an arc that's going here. There's a story that God is telling. And somewhere, that law is going to play into that story. So that's a, hopefully it's a useful analogy for you to be able to do that. And the temptation is for you to be able to look at this, even if you've studied this before, for you to go back, look at that, and say, that's complicated, I'm not going to do that, I don't know how to do that. Forget that, move on, we'll leave that to the mathematicians, right? But my challenge to you is to say that when we study the law and that whenever we look at this, you can't just say that's for somebody else. It's too relevant for you. So whenever we study the Old Testament law, it can be kind of like this. It's got a context. You've got to know something of the before, but you've really got to understand what it's used for afterwards, and then we've got to stick with it. And we can't just shrug it off as being too complicated. So for us, we want to be able to take the law, to put it in its proper place, to put it in its place so that we can fully understand our Bibles. Not just the parts that go on coffee mugs, not just the parts that show up on Instagram posts, not just even the ones that the preachers like to preach on. We've got to be able to understand our entire Bibles. And so whenever we read these laws that seem irrelevant, even offensive today, we've got to be able to assess what are they? What were they given for and what are they today? We've got to know that some do apply, some don't apply, and how that happens. But that threefold division is ultimately not the most helpful thing. So what we've got to do is we've got to go back We've got to understand what we've said repeatedly over the last few weeks. Ultimately, none of these laws are laws that we are bound to. None of them. None of these laws are ones that we are, about, or that we are bound to. They all find their fulfillment in Christ. Can we learn from them? Yes, most of them. Some of them we probably can, and I just haven't figured out exactly how yet. But most of them, yes, we can, we can learn from those laws. 
But all of these laws are given as a part of an old covenant, a covenant that is no longer in effect. And instead, we can move to the New Testament, to the Gospels, where Jesus puts his people under a new covenant, one that was prophesied and anticipated in the old, but not instituted until Christ came. So this is the arc of the story. Is the Old Testament irrelevant? No. But are we bound to it in the same way? No, we are not. And we cannot pick and choose which ones we say we are bound to and which ones we say we are not. And at this point, it would be easy to say, all right, Pastor, look, I can see how the Exodus is a picture of our salvation. Like, I get that. That's a metaphor. I can follow that. I can, I can track with that. I can see how the sacrificial system can point us forward to Jesus. I can even see what we looked at last week with the Sabbath and how it's designed to point us to find our rest in Jesus. But here, I can't, I, I can't get past Exodus 23, 19, that says, You shall not boil a young goat in a mother's milk. Tell me how that points to Jesus. I don't quite see the parallel in that one. And that's a fair question. That's a good question. And like other things that we've seen, there's not a straight line from, from a, a, a goat being boiled in milk to Jesus. You can't just say, All right, I see that, and now I see that. You can't just make that straight line. Not every law is a picture of the gospel. But what we can see is that these laws are helping us tell an important story. One in which the author, God, tells this story in parts. Starting with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the laws we're studying now, that's the beginning of our story. Moving through the wisdom literature of the Psalms and the Proverbs and others, then moving to the history of a nation that he calls his own, and then using prophets to speak to this nation, to call them to look forward to the day when that story would take dramatic changes and the covenant would shift. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, he says it this way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers of the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Spoiler alert, that's what's coming here soon. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the covenant that he institutes through Jesus. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and he begins to institute these changes. He reinterprets, he reapplies the law to our hearts today. That's the Sermon on the Mount and other places in the gospel. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to follow him. His disciples go on to flesh this out for us and to give us some guardrails and to give us some specific instructions about what is moral and what is not, what is sin and what is not, what is obedience and what is not. And that is our standard today. What the Bible teaches and what the Spirit gives conviction to. This is where we are today. So the Old Testament passes away, the law passes away, the New Testament, the new covenant is, goes into effect today, and we are now bound to that new covenant with the law written on our hearts, with the picture of obedience defined by Jesus and by his disciples, and by what the Spirit gives conviction to. Old Testament laws, as obscure and odd as they are, should push us to look for a new covenant. 
to a new day when the law isn't written for oddly specific, totally irrelevant events to us, but instead for when Christ redeems us, when He writes His law on our hearts, and we, when we can know how to worship and how to be obedient. So don't go fishing in the Old Testament for laws that you like. Don't make that charge valid when you say you pick and you choose. But instead, listen to the Spirit. Study the Word. See what the New Testament writers have for us today. But don't just dismiss that Old Testament law. It teaches us of a God that loves justice, and that cares about people, that has been writing a story that we are, uh, he's been writing a story for a long time that we now get to be a part of, that we now get to celebrate, that we now get to see his gracious design played out. And in the arc of this story, what you see is that where one thing started one way, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus redefines so many of these things. No longer is he trying to set, no, no longer is, is a nation set against the other nations, but whenever somebody says, who's my neighbor? He says, the Samaritan whom you hate, that is your neighbor. No longer are you going to be primarily defined by, by gender, male and female, by nationality, Greek or Jew, by any of those things. Instead, you will be one in Christ. No longer do you look to the, the shame that, that so many felt in the Old Testament when you, look at, when you look at Tamar or Ruth. And instead, Matthew writes a genealogy that says Christ comes through them because he has redefined what it means. And the shame has been taken away. And so whenever you look at the Old Testament, yes, we learn from these weird laws. But these weird laws urge us to look forward to a new covenant where things are changed, where things are brought differently before us and before the cross. It's what we get to celebrate today. So when you read an article about the irrelevance of the Bible, about the hypocrisy of Christians that use a Bible with these kinds of laws in it, know that you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to run from. You have a Bible that you can trust. You have a God that is writing a story. You have nothing to hide. You don't have to apologize for what is in the scriptures. You don't need to be ashamed of what is being taught there because you know the story. And you know that those Old Testament laws are not the end of the story. They're the beginning of a story that ends in Christ and his returning and the consummation of his glory on this earth. This is the beauty of this. A new earth, a new creation. Christ is the king, and that's where this story is going. So you have nothing to hide. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to apologize for because you are a part of the story that God is writing. And we are brought in on that. That is something we get to celebrate. And that is where we can have confidence this morning. It's a beautiful picture, not of an oddly irrelevant book, but one that is rewriting our own stories. And we can sing songs that say, this is my story, this is my song. Because the story that's being written is one about Christ. And that's where we bring ourselves this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Father, we acknowledge that there are parts that are hard to understand, that there are difficult things for us to see in here. We acknowledge that as we study your scriptures, we need your spirit to lead us, to show us what is true. 
Father, thank you that you don't leave us on our own just to be some stoic scholars dissecting an ancient book, but instead that you inhabit us, that your spirit indwells within us to teach us, to convict us, and to show us what obedience to you looks like. Father, may we be able to say perfect submission, all is at rest. Because of the story you've written on our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.